All right, ready to continue going through the planets. We do have a homework assignment, which is just these sets of chapters that I started last time. I'll get through a lot of it today and probably finish it on Tuesday. But you still should have enough to be able to finish the homework. If you have it done, if you've already gone through the book to do it, you can turn that in today if you're going to turn in a paper copy. Otherwise, you can um, give it to me, uh, mail it to me tomorrow if you like. Yeah, I better mark that. Quiz 3 on the same chapters is available through Sunday. And again, I'll be through a lot of that material today because we're just going to, we are just skimming through these chapters very quickly. That is the same sets of, sets of chapters. Do use the slides that I gave you for them. I mean, use those to look for what I'm asking because I'm going to ask material from that, not just general material from the book. There's a lot of areas in it that we're not going to cover at all. And then the second exam is still scheduled right now for the 28th of February. Chapter 3 we finished, 4 through 8 we should be through today, hopefully. Hopefully today, maybe, fi maybe finish at the beginning of Tuesday and then chapter 9 on the sun. And then finally coming up, the solar observations due March 2nd. Anything you've made for February, I'm just collecting them and keeping track of everything there. So you can turn those in, I'll take a look at them and look at them over break and get them back to you right after break. Questions? Questions, questions, no questions. All right. We're ready to go then. Well, we have a picture for today, as usual. Um, appropriate one for the class. This goes a little bit further out into space. We're kind of jumping a little further. There you go. Jumping a little bit further out, a picture of a couple of galaxies. Actually, a number of galaxies, but the two, there's two that are primarily being pointed out here. And they kind of jump out to you. There's a nice bluish galaxy here, bluish spiral galaxy. And then a galaxy that looks a little bit redder up in this case. These are in the constellation of Draco. So they're actually galaxies that would be visible with the telescope from where we are. So they're actually something you could see from here if you had a reasonable sized telescope. You're not, they're small enough you're not going to see them with your naked eye. You do need a decent telescope to be able to see them. But interestingly enough, they look very close together on the sky. These two galaxies are actually very far apart. Uh, if I remember the numbers correctly, well, I don't remember the exact. I think one, this one is about 150 million light years away. Okay, that doesn't mean a lot. But so the light from it, we're seeing 150 million years, left 150 million years ago. This one's about four times closer. So they're really, they just happen to be projected together on the sky. One of them is very, very close. And if you could look in three-dimensional, one is you know, four times further away than the other. Which also tells you they look about the same size. That means that's a much bigger galaxy. So that's also an incredibly bigger galaxy because it looks the same size, but it's four times further away. Normally, if you put something four times further away, it's going to look a lot smaller, right? Because they're still looking the identical size, this one must be much, much bigger. So this is actually a very, very big galaxy. It's also an interesting one in that it is red. Now, there are reddish galaxies and blue galaxies. Most spiral galaxies, like this one, tend to look blue because spiral galaxies have a lot of gas and dust in them. They're forming stars. And they form stars. The biggest, hottest stars that form are blue stars. They're very, they don't live very long. but when they're there, they're incredibly bright and they illuminate a lot of the galaxy. So most spiral galaxies like our own and this one here look blue. This is a spiral galaxy. has a little bit of a blue tinge towards the edges of the arms, but looks much, much redder. 
meaning that it hasn't formed stars recently. So it's a spiral galaxy. Typically they form stars recently. This one has not. This one is actually you know, stopped forming stars for some reason that we're trying to understand. So interesting pair of galaxies there. Now if you look on the image, there's actually not just two galaxies, but a whole bunch of them. Anything that doesn't look like a point here is a galaxy. So this fuzzy one over here is a galaxy. Any of these little marks, these are all actually all other galaxies. In many cases, much, much more distant galaxies even than these two. Even though they are, you know, 150 million light years, 40 million, I think it was 40 million light years away, those ones would actually be even most likely further beyond, beyond that. So all the stars that we see on there are stars in our galaxy that just happen to be in the same direction. So these nice bright reddish star and nice bright bluish star just are local stars in our own galaxy that happen to be in the same direction as these much more distant galaxies. Questions? No? No questions today. Okay. Let's go on to the planets then. And we'd gone through a little bit on the origin of the solar system last time. And this time, today I'm going to go through and sort of briefly go through all the, talk about all the planets very quickly. So we're just going to go through a little bit on each one. And they're broken up into chapters. Chapter 5 is specifically the Earth and the Moon. I'm not talking about the Earth much. So there's not, I'm not going to do too, a whole lot on the Earth in this class. I'll talk to you a little bit about the Moon and the Earth and its in their formation as we did a little bit on last time. And then we'll go on and talk about the terrestrial planets, the planets that are like the Earth, Mercury, Venus, and Mars. I'll talk about those a little bit. And then we'll jump out and look at the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Talk about those four. And we'll come back at the end, and we're doing just the planets first. Then we'll come back at the end and talk about all the little stuff, all the moons. There's all sorts of moons around these planets. Remember, there are 166 moons scattered among the solar system. So we'll come and talk about some of the more prominent of those afterwards. So we start out with a picture there of one of the Apollos with the little lunar rover actually traveling around the surface of the moon. And of course all of this stuff is still there. You know, the astronauts didn't bring any of the equipment back. The equipment is still sitting there. And because the moon has no atmosphere, no weathering effects, it'll just sit there for a long time. So all these footprints that they left, all the tracks, they'll sit there for many millions of years undisturbed. You know, unless a meteor were happened to come and hit right there and destroy them, there's nothing else that's going to change the surface of the moon. There's no wind, no atmosphere. There's no wind, there's no rain, no weathering. So we could go back right now, 40 years later, and find the exact tracks looking like they were made yesterday. There is no weathering effect there. If we did that here, you know, the prints are gone, what, on the sand in a matter of hours sometimes or less. The moon is very inactive compared to the Earth. So it has, again, no atmosphere, so the wind would normally blow that away and it would be gone. Those tracks are still there. And all of the equipment is still there. You know, the module landed, but the only part that only the part that took the astronauts back up is what left. Everything else is still there. The rovers are still there. So everything else was left on the surface of the moon because it would too much too much energy to try to be able to bring that back. So what I'm going to talk about in terms of the moon, first of all, one of the things with the moon and the earth is the tides. The tides, something you may be familiar with, you've gone, to the, gone towards the ocean, you've heard of high tide, you know, when is high tide, when is low tide. 
The tides are primarily caused by the moon's gravitational pull on the Earth. And that's what this diagram is showing, is that the moon is pulling on the Earth, but the moon pulls more on the near side of the Earth. Right? It's a little bit closer to the moon. And when we talk about gravity, we say there's a force between two objects. If objects are close enough together, there can be what we call a differential force. It can be pulling more on the near side of the moon than on the Earth than it is on the far side of the Earth. And when you average everything out and look at the overall force, it turns out that the moon pulls the water away from the Earth. Now why pulling the water? Because the water flows, right? Water moves easily. It's kind of hard to pull solid rock. You can do it. It happens. In some, on some of the planets, it actually happens. Some of the moons of Jupiter are so close that they actually get stretched themselves. The actual rock will get stretched. The moon isn't near that strong, so it tries to deform the Earth, but the parts that can move easily, the water, is what flows. So the water gets pulled a little bit more towards the moon, and you'll get a high tide. You'll have more water on this portion of the Earth towards the moon than you would have exactly opposite it. If you want to think about the other side, because you get two high tides about every 12 hours, you also get a high tide exactly opposite the moon. Couple ways to think of it, but one of the most e easiest I find is you can think about here the water's being pulled away from the Earth. When you get to this side, the moon's pulling on the Earth, but it's pulling less on the water, so the Earth kind of gets pulled away from the water. The whole Earth is pulled away from the water. So you'll get a high tide bulge in this direction, and you'll get a high tide bulge in this direction, and then a low tide opposite. So as the Earth rotates, here you get a high tide, and as it rotates, six hours later, you'd have a low tide. Six hours after that, another high tide. So roughly every six hours, the tides would, would change. The water is what flows. Again, you don't feel the whole Earth tugging. The, the moon is pulling on the whole Earth, trying to stretch the Earth. You know, it wants to pull this part of the Earth a lot harder than it is, but because the Earth is a solid object, it's not going to just break it apart. If the gravity were strong enough, that could happen. Moon's gravity isn't strong enough. But something like when we get to Saturn and look at its rings, that can be part of the reasoning for Saturn's rings. Something got too close to them, and this, this force right here, compared to this force right here, was stronger than the actual binding of this object together. If you get an object close enough to something with a strong gravity, it will tear it apart. Jupiter could do that, Saturn. A black hole, if you get close enough to a black hole, it could do the same thing. It could actually stretch and tear something apart. In the case of the moon and the Earth, we don't have to worry about that. Moon's gravity is not near strong enough. But the do it is strong enough to make a significant difference. And if you've ever gone to the ocean at high tide and low tide, there's a big difference to where the water comes. Yes, sir? So if the moon was If the moon were that large, but of course that case, you know, the Earth, Earth is bigger, so you'd have another. You could look at it the other way, maybe a little bit better. The Earth, the moon came close enough to the Earth, the Earth could pull it apart. There's a limit as to how close you can, uh, a satellite can orbit. And once you get closer than that, it would get torn apart just by the gravitational forces. Yes, ma'am? Well, they should have, you should have more. 
It should be easier to form a moon on a terrestrial planet because the gravity is less. Because they're smaller. Whereas Jupiter is so big, you think that there would be less, it would be more. Be more. But good point. Okay? Now what's that, what that's doing though, remember the Earth is rotating very quickly. Once every 24 hours, it's pretty, pretty fast. Especially when we look at, we'll look at Mercury and Venus here in a little bit. So it rotates pretty quickly and the moon's moving around it. So while you have a tidal bulge, it actually ends up getting pulled ahead, turning ahead of the moon a little bit. And that does a couple things. It serves to, first of all, adjust the Earth's gravity a little bit. You've got a little bit more matter in this direction than you do straight. So it tends to speed up the moon a little bit, pull the moon a little faster along in its orbit. And the moon, instead of pulling straight to the Earth, is pulling kind of on an angle. See how there's more material this way. Again, it's greatly exaggerated, but it's actually serving to slow down the Earth's rotation. So the moon is constantly slowing down the Earth's rotation. Very small amounts. But it is consistently happening. So the day is slowly getting longer. Right now it's 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's how long it takes to rotate once. Over many millions of years, that tiny gravitational pull can, will add up and actually slow, slowly slow the Earth's rotation down. And that will happen until the Moon and the Earth, the Moon revolves around the Earth with exactly the same period the Earth rotates. So it'll keep happening until the Moon moves exactly along the same path of the Earth. You would, lo you would lose the tides at that point. The moon shrinking? No, its orbit is changing, but it's it's not shrinking in terms of size. So it's slowly, and, and again, it's it's you're talking, you know, milliseconds every year, you know, second a year at the most. Sometimes we add that leap second in. Have you ever heard at the end of June? Sometimes we'll have to add a leap second in, and a part of that is just to adjust for the differences. But it takes a long time. It's not something again. You know, the day is 23 hours and 56 minutes today, this year. It's not going to be 24 hours next year, 25, 20. It will be, but you've got to talk, you're talking again many millions of years. But that little tiny bit, you know, even microseconds every day adds up over a long period of time. Over astronomical time scales, when we talk about millions and billions of years, eventually they'll come to the point where the moon and the earth are locked together. And that means that the earth will rotate at exactly the same speed that the moon goes around it. The moon will become a geosynchronous satellite. It'll always be in the same spot in the sky. Meaning that if that were to happen over Pennsylvania, we'd see the moon all the time. It would never rise or set. If it happened here and you lived in China, you'd never see the moon. As far as you were aware, the moon wouldn't exist. It would always be on the other side of the Earth. Same way we put geosynchronous satellites. They're up above certain areas. The moon would eventually become one of those. Again, we're talking billions of years in the future. But at some point, the moon would eventually stop rising and setting. It would be visible in one spot and that would be it, wherever you happen to be. Not again, just one spot, half the Earth. So half the Earth would see the moon, half the Earth would never see the moon. So if it happened right here, you know, if you lived in Asia, you'd be in luck. You'd see the moon. But if you lived in the US or South America, you'd never see the moon at all. Again, billions of years, billions of years in the future. Yes, ma'am? Um, will the sun die before that would happen? 
I'm not sure. I'd have to look up the timing for it. I don't know if the sun, if we, we would actually be able to stop it in five. We have about five billion years of the sun's light left. So I don't know if that's enough. I haven't looked at the exact timing, but it's a good question. Yes, sir. How visible would it be? How visible would what be? The moon? Be, the, be visible just the same as it is right now. It would go through its phases. It would still go through its whole cycle of phases. It would be full. It would be new, depending on where it is. But it would always be over the same spot of the Earth. Anything else? Okay, going into the moon, and as, as you notice, if you follow my chapters at the top, I'm ve skipping very big sections of the, of the chapters here. So we jumped already, we're already on section 5-6 on the moon. The moon is really divided into two, two parts. It's got two different areas. When you look at it, you sort of get that general feature. You get some lighter and some darker areas when you look at it with your naked eye. The darker areas are what we call the maria. Maria, seas, so they were the seas on the moon. And that may have been what was thought, you know, many thousands of years ago. They looked like, you know, from a distance, when you're looking at just the moon up there, it looks like they're much smoother areas. They could, could be considered comparable to oceans on the Earth. They're not. There's no liquid water on the moon. Much too, much too cold. No atmosphere, nothing to keep them in. So there, are, there aren't any there, but they can sort of look like seas, and that's how they got their name of the Maria. The other part that you see, and some of that is shown here, is down, especially on the near side, you see a lot of Maria. So a lot of these big areas, these were actually lava flows. So at some point, a long time ago, in terms of the moon, we're talking about four billion years ago, three, four billion years ago, there was a large impact that cracked the surface of the surface of the moon. So something large hit and cracked the surface. Four, three, four billion years ago, the moon actually had a molten interior, sort of like the Earth does. It had lava that could flow up. So when something hit it, a large impact, and as things melted inside, the lava would actually flow out and fill in that basin. So it's actually filling in the remnants of a large impact. That's the Maria. The other portion is what we call the highlands. Those are lighter in color, and they're much more heavily cratered. So as you can see down in this area, there's a lot of craters here. That's been hit by a lot more meteorites. But it really doesn't mean that. The whole moon was hit by about the same number of meteorites, no matter where you look. It was constantly being hit by meteors. But some areas never got flooded. And highlands are higher areas, higher elevated areas. Think of them like the continents and the seas on the Earth. Some areas are higher on the Earth, up above. Some are down lower. You know, where is sea level on the moon? Well, there's no sea, but you could still get an average level. Some things are lower, some things are higher. So these are just areas that never got flooded, so they still show all of their craters. What we'll see throughout the solar system as we look is that the more craters you see on something, the younger, the older the surface is. Just means the surface has been unchanged for a long time. So when we look at things like Mercury and Venus and Mars, we can look at how many craters there are in different areas. And not only can I tell you that this surface has been unchanged for a longer time than this, but you can compare them across the planets. You can see how many craters are there on Mercury. Does Mercury have a lot of craters or just a few? How does, what does Venus have? What does Mars have? Doesn't work with the Jovian planets. Jovian planets don't have a surface, right? There's no place to put a crater. So you smash a thrower, you can, they still get hit. 
you can hit a, send a meteor into Jupiter and it'll make a big splash type thing. It'll make a little effect on the atmosphere. But it ne- there's, no play, there's no solid surface for it to actually impact and form a crater. But it does work on the moons of the Jovian planets. And in fact, one of them, Io, is the closest moon to Jupiter, actually has exactly this many impact craters. Zero. It's, a ver- it's the youngest surface in the solar system, younger than the Earth's surface. It's constant, it's so close to Jupiter, its surface is constantly being recovered by lava on a very, very short time scale. So there are no impact craters. The more impact craters you see, a couple of the moons have a few, and others like our moon, parts of this, you can go see parts of the moon as it was essentially you know, almost four billion years ago. Here's an example of forming a crater. So essentially this applies to any planet. Doing the example here on the moon, but the meteoroid comes in. When you have something like the moon, you got no atmosphere there, so you got nothing to slow it down, nothing to burn up even the little meteors. So everything hits the surface of the moon. The Earth, little tiny things would all get burned up in the atmosphere, so they wouldn't actually make it to us. But essentially, this meteoroid comes in, smashes in someplace, and causes an impact down and throws material out. So it ejects material in the explosion, sends shock waves down, sends material out. You end up with a crater on the surface. So you'll end up with a crater, a big impact. And again, I said that impact would be about 10 times larger than the object that hit it. So if the object that hit it was a meter across, making lots of noise for us today, aren't they? If the object was a meter across, it would form a crater about 10 meters. If it was 10 meters, it would be about 100 meters. If it was about 100 meters, it would be about a kilometer in size. You know, one kilometer, ten, so just about 10 times larger and about twice as deep. So again, if it was about a meter, it would form a crater about 2 meters deep. So the crater that's left behind is always significantly bigger than the object that hit it. Now the other thing that's shown here is material gets thrown out. And you can see this in some of the pictures on the moon. In fact, let me see if I can go back one. I think that might show it better. Whoops. How about back? You can see on some of these craters, here's a relatively young crater named Copernicus. Can you see that there's, there's the crater right there and there's a big impact of material. You can almost see rays spreading out from the crater some of these very young craters, that's the ejected material. When it impacted, that material gets spread out over the entire surface of the moon or of the planet. Again, on the Earth, this same thing would happen, but it all gets wiped out. Right? The Earth constantly is being weathered. It takes, it takes a long time for that to happen on the moon because there's no wind, no rain, no nothing there. Whereas on the Earth, you know, even talking thousands of years, you can quickly eliminate a lot of this and even the crater itself. Even only a few thousand, even over thousands to tens of thousands to a hundred thousand years. Long time for us. Very short time astronomically. Yes, sir? You said over the course of thousands of years that ejected material would get, like, disappear. On the Earth. On the Earth, it eventually will wipe out on the moon. It takes a lot longer. Because the, the one thing the moon gets that we don't is those little teeny tiny meteorites. 
Okay, little tiny specks of dust, they're all pounding into the moon. They work its surface. So that's sort of the weathering on the moon. Little tiny micrometeorites pounding it up. So actually when, you land, when they landed on the moon, they found there was actually a, you know, a layer a couple inches deep of just powdered material, which was co- these constant micrometeorites. All the meteor showers, something that never gets to the Earth, were actually hitting the surface of the moon and causing it to change. Yeah, one second. Yeah. It would eventually do them. Most of them are so small that it's, you know, it's not going to do a whole lot. But yeah, eventually it would cause, eventually it will decay them. That is the sort of the weathering force on the moon. But you're talking, you know, 40 years on the moon is nothing. You're talking many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to actually eliminate these. Yes, sir? Does the moon pull most of them away from the Earth, like the meteorites, or is that not the case at all? No. No, they still come through pretty. They come, still come through pretty well. I mean, if something went real close to the moon, yeah, the moon would grab it. Same thing for the Earth. If they came closer to the Earth, it would prevent it from getting to the moon. It's not like a filter or anything. No, no. So, in fact, we we did that. We did that. We did that in the lab, right? I did that with the moon. Yeah, that was this class with the moon in the lab class when I covered for you. We did the moon. I had my nice square moon and my square Earth. And remember where the moon, remember how big the Earth was up here? Remember how big the moon was in the back of the class? It's too small to really filter in. I mean, there's too many other areas that things can come from. It helps that little bit. Okay, so that's essentially a crater. And then the information I gave you here is what I've told you. Crater is about 10 times as wide as the meteoroid that creates them. So again, if something about 100 meters were to hit, that'll form a crater about a kilometer across, a little over half a mile. That's not the extent of the damage. Don't forget that ejecta and material was thrown much further out. That's just the crater that's left. So I mean, even something 100 meters that happened to hit a city would not be a pleasant thing. That could take out a good chunk. I mean, it would do a lot of damage. I mean, a crater would be a kilometer across. That's just there. Then you have a lot of damage just beyond that from the impact. I mean, think of it as a real good earthquake. It would really cause a lot of damage. And the interesting thing is that you know, something 100 meters isn't very big. It isn't easy to detect. And a lot of the meteoroids that come by the Earth, we don't know they're coming. We find them, you know, oh, this one came by two days ago. We find them after the fact. Something that small is very hard to see until it's almost on top of you. Now, 100 meters is big. It's a football field. Out in space, that's nothing. It's very, very tiny. It's not bright enough for us to actually see it until it gets too close, too close to us. Now when we look at that, the craters, most of the craters on the moon are about 4 billion years ago. When we look at the solar system, a lot of the bombardment, a lot of the craters that we see formed, especially on objects like the moon, on Mercury, on Mars, not so much on the Earth because we've already talked about the Earth has other factors going on. All of it, a lot of it occurred about three and a half, three and a half, four billion years ago. So it allows us, when we see things that are cratered on the moon, we've been able to go ahead and date them, figure out how old they are, just based on how many craters there are. We can use that to tell how old other parts of the solar system are. We can assume that the cratering rate was about constant. So same number of craters fell on the moon as on Mercury. Probably a pretty good guess. And if we see, you know, every square mile has 100 craters on the moon, and if the square mile on Mercury has the same number of craters, they're about the same age. That's a convenient way to estimate ages in the solar system. Because the only way we can get accurate ages 
is by radioactive dating methods. It means we need a sample of the rock. So in order to figure out how old part of mercury is, we need a piece of mercury in the laboratory and analyze it. We can do that with moon rocks because we brought some back. We've been able to date some moon rocks, find out that some are three and a half, some are four, some are four and a half billion years old. We can't do that for Mercury. We'd have to get something there, bring them back. We'd have to send something to Mars, bring material back in order to be able to, in order to be able to get actual dates. So one of the ways we sort of estimate ages is based on this crater count. Now where did the moon come from? It's always been there, right? Just about for almost the entire history of the Earth, the moon has been there. But this is the current sort of model as to how we think the moon formed. And it's a little different than some of the other moons. And I said, the Earth is a very unusual terrestrial planet. Mercury has no moons. Venus has no moons. Mars has two little teeny tiny moons that you're talking, you know, I don't even think they're a kilometer across. I mean, they're very small. No, not this quite this small, but they're small. The Earth has a moon that's actually a good chunk of the size of the Earth, about a quarter of the size of the Earth. That's unusual. There aren't any other moons in the solar system that are a quarter of the size of their planet, except Pluto. So Pluto does have a moon that's that, that, that big. But any of the other, the actual official eight planets that are left, none of them has a moon like that. Jupiter has moons that are the size of ours, but Jupiter's so many times bigger. So we're the only one that has a moon that is a significant fraction of our size. And that's led us to come up with sort of a different theory for the formation of the moon. There had been a number of different things. You know, maybe it was just a traveling material that happened to get captured into orbit around the Earth. Or that if they just, the Earth and the moon just happened to form as a double planet. Most of those have been disregarded. They're not, they're, they don't seem to fit all of the information we find about the moon. What we tend to think now is that there was a collision. Something the size of the Earth, or almost the size of the Earth, that had formed, it got struck glancingly by something maybe the size of Mars. So two very big objects colliding into each other. And they think that that could have, well, first of all, done a lot of damage to both. The one essentially, little one essentially gets torn apart. But as shown in the little diagram here, this is the core. The blue is the core, the iron material. So a lot of the iron material from this object, this Mars-sized object, would have been incorporated in the Earth. So the Earth would have a lot more iron than it should otherwise. And it does. The Earth is actually denser than you'd think it should be. The Earth and Mercury are almost exactly the same density. But Mercury being so much closer to the Sun should have a lot more metal. Should have a lot less rock because rock wouldn't have been able to condense there. So it explains the density of the Earth. Why is the Earth so much denser? It also explains the density of the moon because the Earth and the moon, if they form together, so if they were just forming and for some reason instead of forming one object, they form two. They were just orbiting each other. Sometimes you form one star, sometimes you form two, sometimes you form ten together. It can make sense, but then if they form together, why is the Earth so much denser than the moon? The moon's density is significantly less. It's actually closer to that of Mars. And the way we're explaining that is that you took these two objects, one got the extra iron, the one that was left over that formed up out here eventually was just from those crustal materials, so mostly made up of rock. The moon doesn't have much of a metal core. 
And we can tell that by seismic measurements that the astronauts made. We put seismic instruments on the moon. And it sort of gives us, this is our current best theory to maybe how the moon and the earth actually, actually formed. Large impact of something about the size of Mars on an Earth that had not yet, this is very early in the Earth's history. This wasn't a billion years ago or two billion years. This is four and a half billion years ago. So the Earth was just forming. It was still all completely molten. Got smashed by something. And that material, most of the material that was from the outer layers, eventually coalesced in orbits to become the Moon. Most of the metal portion came to the Earth. It explains some of the things that we see about the Earth and the Moon. So it actually gives us some explanation that other theories do not, they do not explain. So that's our current origin. And they say the example there are just some shots from a computer model that show sort of the stages of the impact. And then the finally, how some of that material condensed to get, would have condensed together to have formed the Moon. The cratering. We've talked about the cratering. Here's what the moon might have looked like over, over time. For a long time, early, early, early in the history, it was getting pounded by craters. So the moon might have looked something like this four billion years ago. So as it was forming, it was really heavily cratered. It was constantly being hit. The whole thing looked like the highlands. It was craters, not just a crater here and a crater there, but a crater on top of a crater on top of a crater on top of a crater. Over a short amount of time, as the moon had formed, it released a lot of energy in the interior. It heated up inside. Because it collapsed, it gained some energy. Because there are radioactive materials in the interior, they heated up the interior and melted it. That melting would then flow out through cracks in the surface from these impacts and form the maria. So, Three, three and a half billion years ago, you would have seen something like this, where the lava had flowed freshly and wiped out all craters in the lower lying areas. So think about it, below, sea, below what you call sea level on the moon. It wiped out all the craters in that area. Yeah? You're saying that uh, four billion years ago, you were getting hit by a lot more craters than it is now. Yes. There were a because there was, the solar system was still in the process of forming, so there were, all, there were a lot more meteors around. Since then, they've been swept up by all the planets. They've been all swept up and collected, so we still get hit. There's still a lot out there, but nowhere near the number. You know, here you get hit, you see a meteor hit, you know. Here it hits today, it hits, the, you know. But there you would have been getting pounded, 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 pounded constantly. And as the solar system formed and the planets and the moons collected all of those, then now there's a lot fewer. There's just fewer meteors out there to run into. And then slowly over time, as I said, there's still some. So if there were none, you'd be stuck here and the moon would look just like that. Well, now it's gotten hit by some craters. It's gotten you know, pocked up a little bit, even on top of the smoother areas. Come back three billion years more, it'll get even more craters. So the Mario will slowly get covered up. Probably not fast enough that they'll ever disappear in the life of the solar system. You know, that's, in three billion years, it's changed a little bit. But three billion years is a long time. So if you could go three billion more, we'll be pushing towards the end of the solar system's life. Four, four and a half to five billion years would be the end of it, would be our estimate, current estimates. So that's roughly what has happened to the moon. But this would be the same for almost any object in terms of the number of cratering. How many craters formed? A lot of them formed four billion years ago. Almost all the impacts, all the craters that we see 
on the planets without an atmosphere. Right? Earth is the opposite. Earth, all of these craters are gone. We have things like plate tectonics that wipes them out. You know, the crust gets melted. The volcanic activity, volcanoes fill up a crater. Weathering. You know, even over 100,000 years, even a nice crater that's sitting, you know, where there's no volcanic activity, no nothing else, is just going to get constantly washed down. Every time it rains, you lose a little bit of, the cr of it. It slowly gets leveled off. A million years later, are you even going to know it was a crater there? Plus, the Earth has the advantage that you hit an you hit a ocean. You know, causes a nice tidal wave, maybe, but there's no impact left. So you're not going to actually see anything left behind. It'll be gone. Okay. Questions on the moon? See, again, I kind of breeze through the Earth and moon there a little bit. Yes? So, like, three billion years ago, was there actually lava on the surface of the moon? Three, years ago, there would have been lava on the surface of the moon. So there would actually have been lava flowing like we have on the Earth. That's now since melted, I mean, it's, this moon is cooled off enough now, it's a lot smaller, so it's actually cooled down inside. So the lava, there still could be some molten material, but it's way down in the core and does, can't make it out to the surface any longer. Yeah. It might, it might have looked a little, I mean, I'm not sure, but depending on what the lava was made up of, but yeah, it would have been, a very, it would have been very hot, so yeah. Okay. All right, terrestrial planets. We're going to look a little bit about the basics of Mercury and Venus. First one here is just where we see them in the sky. If you've ever looked for Mercury or Venus, hopefully you've seen Venus this semester. Right? Everybody's seen it in the evening sky. Go look in the west, the sun sets, there's a big bright thing up there, that's Venus. And actually if you see Venus, sun setting there, Venus is about there, Jupiter is about there. So Venus and Jupiter are real nice in the evening sky right, evening sky right now. But they never get very far away from the sun. Because here's the Earth, so no matter where we are, Sun's here, no matter where Venus hap or Mercury happens to be in its orbit, it can only be a certain distance away from the Sun. In this case, for, Ven for Mercury, it's only about 28 degrees. 28 degrees, what, is that, what does that mean? If you hold your fist out like this, that's about 10 degrees. So two fists, three fists. Put sunset and hold three fists up, that'll be about as far as Mercury can ever get away from the Sun. So you never see it very brightly. It's not going to shine nice and bright when it's dark outside. Mercury is actually very hard to see because you can only see it when it's, when it's at its furthest point away from the sun. It never gets that far away. It also doesn't get near as bright as Venus, so it doesn't glow quite as brightly. It is visible with the naked eye. You can see it. You can see it. And in fact, it's coming up next month. I'll, have to, I'll double check the times and let you, but there's actually a time next, I think it's towards the beginning of next month, when Mercury will be at its greatest uh, visibility in the morning, right before, right before sunrise, where you can actually get a chance to see Mercury, where it'll be, you know, 20 some degrees away from the sun, so you can actually see it just before it starts to get, get light. You can actually pick it out a little bit. Venus does the same thing. Venus can get about 47 degrees away. Advantage Venus has that it gets so much brighter. So Venus is so much brighter than, than Mercury that it stands, out, it stands out a lot more. Mercury looks more like a regular star. So a regular star lost in the glow of the sunlight is not a very easy thing to pick out. Venus is the third brightest object in the sky. Sun, moon, Venus. So it's very easy to see because you see it. It's that very bright star that you see again in the evening sky right now. 
So we never really see them very well. It's made them hard, hard to study. It's very hard to study Venus to point a telescope at it when it's never very far away from the sun. That's why it's taken to really learn a lot about Mercury until we actually got space probes there. The Pioneer probe, we had a Pioneer, yeah, Pioneer probe that went to Mercury in the 70s. And we have the Mercury Messenger probe that's there right now. It's actually currently in orbit around Mercury and mapping it. So we're actually learning a lot more about Mercury now than we did in the thousands and thousands and thousands of years that it was known. And one of the things we learned about Mercury is that we used to think that it was tidally locked to the sun. It made sense to us. Now, tidally locked, I said that in terms of the moon and the earth. right? The moon always keeps, keeps one side facing the earth. Well, they thought Mercury was so close to the sun, it was going to do the same thing. The best measurements we could get, you know, trying to look at features on the surface of the moon, didn't dispute that, so that's what they thought. Until about 1965, they found that it, that wasn't the case. They found that instead of being locked, what we call one-to-one, -one, so it's the same face of Mercury always points towards the sun as it goes around, it's actually in a three-to-two resonance. Three-to-two resonance simply means that three days on Mercury is the same as two years. So as it goes around, and you start here with day zero, it is rotating very slowly. It takes it about 58 days, 59 days to have rotated once. Then the second one, you know, go around again. So 59, 118, you've gone around again, back to the same spot. And then finally, back to where you were. were. It takes three years is the equivalent of two days on Mercury. So it is locked to the sun. It's just locked in a much different resonance than what we expected, a much different pattern. We had expected it just because it's so close to the sun that it would just always keep its same side towards the sun, which would have made Mercury very interesting if that had been the case. Because Mercury would have been the hottest planet in the solar system. Right? You've got that one side there facing the sun constantly, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. I know I'm using Earth time, but that's easier than using you know, Mercury time. But it means the other side would have been the coldest part of the solar system. Because even though it's so close to the sun, you know, Mercury is it's big, big rock, it's not going to be a good conductor of heat. So this side would never see the sun, ever, if that had been the case. And it would have been the coldest spot, it would have been colder than Pluto because it would never ever see the sun. It would be constantly insulated by the rest of, rest of Mercury. Turns out that is not the case. It's actually in this interesting 3 to 2 rotation. And again, all that means is that it spins on its axis three days is the same as two Mercury years. Instead of having one day being one year, three days is two years. Now Mercury, in terms of looking at the atmospheres, and again, see, I'm going through these pretty briefly here for you. Mercury has no atmosphere. Nothing we can detect. It's too hot. Okay? Too hot means that the particles in the atmosphere would be moving, if there was an atmosphere, would be moving very, very quickly. They'd have high velocities. They could be moving fast enough to escape from the planet. They could exceed the escape velocity of the planet. It can't hold on to them. Mercury's too small. It doesn't have that much of a gravity. It doesn't have that much gravity. So it can't hold those particles. The Earth has enough gravity to be able to hold some of the more massive particles, things like oxygen and nitrogen that we breathe. But Mercury is too small and too hot to be able, even able to hold those. 
Venus, on the other hand, has a much denser atmosphere than the Earth. It's about 100 times denser, 100 times denser or so. So, looks a lot like the Earth. If you look at just images of it, very cloud covered, except it's constantly covered in clouds. So, I mean, the thought, again, uh, pre-1960s would have been that it was a very jungle planet. No, maybe there were maybe there were oceans under those clouds we just couldn't see. Maybe there were big, you know, jungle forests of of matter. It turns out that wasn't the case. But until we could actually make measurements and radar measurements of Venus, were actually able to penetrate the clouds and see the surface, and we found out that instead of being you know, nice and tropically warm, you know, 90 degrees, 80, 90, 100 degrees, 110, you know, something that's gets pretty warm, but it's actually talking more like 700 degrees. It's extremely hot there. It's hot enough to melt lead. And that's because, in part, it has a very, very strong greenhouse effect. Most of that atmosphere has all the same stuff the Earth has. It's all the same stuff. The planet's almost exactly the same size as the Earth. But being a little bit closer to the sun, it's a little bit hotter. And instead of the water being able to take things like carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide ends up, as it gets hotter and hotter, gets baked out of the rocks and ends up destroying any water that was there. So the water gets broken apart. And most of that escapes out into space. A lot of it is hydrogen. That just escapes out into space. Venus isn't big enough to hold on to hydrogen. Neither is the Earth. So you had a lot of carbon dioxide left over. And that carbon dioxide is very good at trapping heat. It lets sunlight in. It works as a greenhouse. Sunlight comes in, heats up the ground. The ground re-radiates the light, but it doesn't re-radiate it invisible. You know. Red, red and blue light come in and hit it, but it re-radiates it as infrared. Well, this carbon dioxide is, is opaque, dark, to the infrared light, so it doesn't let it out. It acts as a great big blanket, keeping all the heat in there. Over the many billions of years, it's actually built up a temperature of about 700 degrees. So, not a place you'd want, you'd want to land. Probably one of the least likely planets of the terrestrial planets, probably be the last terrestrial planet we ever visit in terms of actually landing things on the surface. Uh, we have landed, the Russians have landed probes on Venus. They don't last very long. The pressure is so high, it, they can get, they get crushed over in a relatively short amount of time. The atmosphere also, not only having car, a lot of carbon dioxide, also has a lot of acids in it, sulfuric acid. So metals and things that we tend to send you know, part of our spacecraft will dissolve. Not instantly, but, but, very, but relatively quickly. The instru instruments and materials, do not, they do not last very long. So we've been able to take some pictures from the surface of Venus. Most of what we know, a lot of what we know, is from radio and radar imaging. Something we can look from above and actually make ra take radar images of the, of the planets, of the planet. Questions? What's the strongest metal on Earth that we know of? <sighs> I don't, I'm sure there's certain alloys that have been made that are, you know, would, would withstand the temperatures that are there. How well they'll withstand the acids, I'm not sure. Because you could probably withstand the pressure is the other thing. You know, it's, you're well below what we'd have well below sea level because the atmospheric pressure is not just what you feel here, but a hundred times more. 
So the pressure would be crushing it. So there's a, you could probably make something that would hold up better. And I'm sure their later probes did. I know the first ones did not last very long. Question? Yeah. Um, you were saying that because of like the cloud cover and everything, mm -hmm. it's really like it's really hot on Venus. Mm -hmm. If it happened to be further away from like the sun than like the Earth is, say, if like where Mars is, do you think it would be cooler? I think if, if Venus had probably been where, if you could have swapped the two, Venus would probably be almost a habitable planet. It's so much bigger. Mars is not that far from being a habitable planet. So likely if Venus had been there, even being a bigger planet, able to hold more atmosphere than Mars could, it probably would have been almost a habitable planet. But just being, too, being a little too close, it just heat, it heated up too much. And in terms of atmosphere, Mars, eh. It's, not, it's actually similar to Venus's atmosphere, more so than the Earth's. Um, it's very, very thin. Venus is about 100 times denser than the Earth's. Mars is about 1 100th. So there isn't a lot of atmosphere there to breathe. It's got a little bit of an atmosphere. It does have some. But it is primarily carbon dioxide like Venus. You know, 90, 95, 96% of the atmosphere of both of these is actually carbon dioxide. So that's the primary component, whereas on Earth, that's a very minor component, you know, less than 1% of the atmosphere. Okay. Here's an example, and this is one of the pictures from Messenger. And looks a lot like the moon, right? It's like the pictures we saw of the moon. And it is. Very much, you see, similar cratering. Similar craters. Mercury has no atmosphere, just like the moon. So it's going to get a lot of craters. They're going to last for a long time. They're not going to get wiped out by any other forces. There's no wind, no rain, nothing else, no rivers, nothing to erode away the craters. So they're going to stay for a long time. So Mercury does actually look quite a bit like the moon. One of the features it does have that you don't see on the moon is what we call, we don't see as well on the moon as scarps. Scarps are these long cliffs. You can see them running across here, running across the different areas of the moon. You see a long cliff running through there. You see some running through here. What we call a scarp is something that, and th those are high. I should make, point that out because they look like you know, a little bump in it there. But they're actually, you're actually talking you know, hundreds of kilometers, hundreds of miles long and maybe about three kilometers high. So not just being you know, a little bump in the surface, but that's you know, almost two miles up. Yeah? Can I go back to the last one? Oh, maybe. Yeah. OK. Okay, so good. So about about three kilometers, about two about two miles high, roughly about two miles high. About how high those are. So they're really deep. They're little deep creases in the crust of the planet. What we think happened with these is that 
as the planet started to cool inside, eventually, first of all, it would have been molten. It would have formed at a certain size. But as that molten material inside slowly started to solidify, well, what happens to most things is they turn from a liquid to a solid. They get smaller, right? So they condense down, and the whole crust sort of would have folded up a little bit by those few kilometers as it went down. So as it crushed, as, it, as that material inside actually decide, started to cool and solidify, the crust would have then changed, would have then changed, would have followed it down and just kind of crumpled up. And you get these very long patterns. So you see a number of them here, again, running right across there, that can, again, be hundreds of kilometers, hundreds of miles long. So you're talking across a decent way across the state of Pennsylvania that they'd run. And they'd be, you know, not just, not just little mountains like you see here, you know, like little hills, mountains. They're actually many miles. They could be miles high. So it was a very big condensation that occurred when that material towards the inside part of Mercury was able to, was able to cool and actually contract. Now Venus, we'll see, looks a lot like the Earth. When we look at it in terms of here, now do note that these are both radar maps. These aren't showing water. These aren't showing just the oceans. You recognize them on the Earth because you recognize where everything is. But really what it's showing is higher and lower areas. So you see here's North and South America, higher, lighter colors and, and higher, higher elevation. And there's the Pacific, Atlantic Oceans, Indian Ocean, in lower elevations. If we make the same scale and same type of map, on Venus, okay, the continents don't look the same, but the overall pattern, the general idea is about the same. If you could switch, Mercury, switch Venus and Earth as to their positions, you know, you'd have oceans, you'd have some islands here, some continents, some very high areas, and you know, like you have the Himalayan mountains up here, you have some very high ones up in the Ishtar Terra, some very high areas, much higher elevations. So if you could suddenly flood Venus with water, you would have, again, very big oceans, very large oceans, sort of similar to what we see on the Earth. Again, the exact patterns will be different. It won't look like North America. It won't look like Africa. It won't look like Australia. But the general pattern is that you'll see certain continents, you'll see continents, and you'll see lower-lying areas, you know, ocean, basin areas. Again, no water on Venus, so there's not actually any water in these. They would just be higher and lower areas on the surface. But the actual pattern looks about the same. And we find that on a lot of the planets, Venus, Mars. If you take a picture of them and just look at the scenery, they don't look all that different. Yep. Does it look that different than what you might see on the Earth someplace? If you go out to a desert someplace, okay, it's not looking like if you took a picture in downtown Harrisburg necessarily, but if you go and took a picture out in the desert somewhere, you know, it doesn't look all that different. This was actually taken by one of the Venera spacecraft, one of the Russian spacecraft that landed on the surface of Venus. You can see a little portion of it here and here. You see there's not a lot of light. It's very dull reddish, the light that actually makes it through the atmosphere. It's completely cloud covered all the time. So a lot of that is due to the, specifically due to the atmosphere that gives us this duller red color. The surface really isn't that red. The surface would be more of a grayish if you actually looked at it in you know, regular, typical light, if you could eliminate the clouds. So that's what it would look like on 
on Venus, but if you could eliminate, take that into account that it's everything coming through the atmosphere, what color are the rocks really? They would look more of a gray, more just a gray. But that's an example. And that's one of the Venera probes that there were a number of them that landed on Venus. Russians had much better luck landing on Venus than they have had doing anything with Mars. You know, they've sent similar number of probes to each and I think they've yet to have a successful one to get to Mars and back. That you know, they've tried. This last one they sent went to get samples from Mars and come back and it made it part way back and then lost contact. So they have not had their luck with Mars. They've actually landed on Venus whereas the United States has not landed a probe on Venus. We've sent radar mappers and done a lot of mapping, as I showed you in the pictures on the previous slide, but not actually land on, not actually having landed on the surface. We've concentrated more on Mars. But again, it doesn't look all that different than some of the others, some of some areas on the Earth, for example. And Mars is similar. If we look at some pictures of Mars, this is a general overview of Mars. Um, there are, again, some areas that have lots of craters. You can't see a whole lot of it in this picture, I think maybe in one of the other ones. But you do see some of the major features in this one. One is this Vallis Marineris, a very long canyon almost stretching across the surface of Mars. If you put that on the United States, that would stretch from one end of the country to the other. That's how big that is. So that would stretch you know, from New York to Los Angeles on the US from edge to edge. That's how big that is on the surface of Mars. And what it is, and you've heard, Earth has plate tectonics. I didn't go into a lot of detail in this class, but the Earth has plates that move you know, side to side, towards each other, away from each other, constantly over the surface. This is likely, and in fact it looks very much like the big rift valley in eastern Africa, where the continent of Africa, the eastern part of it, is actually set in the process of separating from the rest of the continent. There's a big rift valley, come back in 100 million years, and the, you know, part of Africa will have, will have split off. This looks like it might have been a similar thing happening on Mars, that Mars started to form plate tectonics. It started to have this big valley where plates were starting to separate. But then Mars, being a lot smaller than the Earth, cooled off. Cooled off a lot quicker than the Earth did, so it, never, it just has this remnant of that type of activity, plate tectonics, but doesn't actually have any. Mars does have volcanoes on it. Oh, question, I'm sorry. So, yeah. Eventually the Earth would cool, eventually if the Earth would cool off enough, yeah. The, the crust would get thicker and thicker and eventually everything would, would stop. Now again, I don't know, I'm not a geologist so I don't know the timing. Whether that would take 10 billion years and it makes no difference to us because the Earth will be gone by then or if it could happen in a billion or two years. I, that I'm not, a, not, a, not certain on. But yes, in the long run, yes that should happen. It should slowly, as the Earth cools, then you'd have a much thicker crust and the plates would slow down and eventually stop moving. Questions? Okay. And again, I've mentioned the cratering here. Some of these areas have a lot of craters. You don't see them on this picture. I think I show some in, one, in a later picture here. But Some areas will have a lot of craters on Mars. Some will have less. There are volcanoes on Mars. and There's a couple noted here. The area around them, called the Tharsis Bulge, is actually very big very big chunk of Mars. You're only seeing the edge of it on this diagram. It actually goes around. There's three volcanoes. There's four volcanoes in it. One, two, a third one down here, and the biggest one I'm going to show you in another picture here in just a moment, off to the side, off, on, off around the other side of Mars. 
Now they're not active volcanoes any longer. They were active. And they're in fact much, much bigger than anything we have on the surface of the Earth. Here's Olympus Mons, largest volcano in the solar system. 700 kilometers in diameter, about 400 miles. So, you know, put it, put it in the center of Pennsylvania. It stretches across the state and beyond, a little beyond, especially north-south. It'll actually stretch beyond that. The, the caldera, the opening at the top here, is big enough. It's about 80 kilometers, and I think I looked up one time. I think I tried to figure that out. It was like about the size of Connecticut. So just the opening in it was the size, you know, of a small state. So it's a tremendously big volcano. The, there's three other volcanoes that we know of on Mars. They're a little bit smaller, but not much. 25 kilometers high. Let's see, 25 kilometers is what, about 15 miles. So makes Mount Everest look like nothing. You know, it's about what, three, four times high? What is Mount Everest? A couple, few miles? So this is, you know, it makes Mount Everest look like nothing. It's a much, much higher volcano. Now how can Mars make such a big volcano when the Earth, Earth, Earth doesn't? Well, two things. First of all, Mars doesn't have the plates, right? The Hawaiian volcanoes are very similar type volcanoes to this. You know, Hawaiian volcanoes would look a lot like this. But the problem is, as the Hawaiian volcanoes formed, right now the Hawaiian active volcano is the one on the Big Island, right? Toward just off the Big Island. And then you have a whole chain of all where the volcano had been previously over millions of years. So we sort of leave this chain of volcanoes because the plate is constantly moving. As the Pacific plate moves, that spot in the crust where, that where the lava is coming through is slowly, is slowly, is staying in the same spot, but the plate is actually moving. So you're actually creating a new island. So Hawaii, again, you could have a new island come back in 100 million years. There'll be a new island there. The older ones in there will slowly get worn down. Waves are constantly hitting them, slowly eating away at them. Those islands will slowly disappear. Again, not in our lifetime, over, over many millions of years. But there are, and they are the biggest. And the other reason is that Mars is smaller than the Earth. The smaller something is, the bigger the mountain or the bigger the volcano it can have. Doesn't seem right, does it? But think about it this way in terms of gravity. The Earth's gravity is so strong that if you tried to put something this size on the Earth, the gravity of the Earth pulling it down would be enough to melt the bottom of it and it would sink. There'd be enough gravity pulling it that it would heat up the bottom and it would sink it down to something where it becomes stable on the Earth, something the size of Mount Everest. But on Mars, there's less gravity, so you can actually form volcanoes that are actually higher. Nothing moved. The volcano could keep, ex keep exploding there, erupting for millions of years. And it's a smaller, and a smaller planet. Surface of Mars. Question? Okay. Some of this, we talk about water on Mars. Now, I've talked about some of this already. Most of the small craters are gone. Mars does have, does have an atmosphere, not a very thin one, not a very thick one, but a thin atmosphere. It actually can wipe out some of the craters. So most of the little tiny craters that we see on Mercury, that we see on the Moon, are wiped out on Mars. But we can use that to estimate the surface ages. The last picture here I wanted to show is one evidence of water on Mars. If you look at that crater, and look at the ejecta, the material around it. 
Remember on the moon it was nice and sharp? You know, just like nice rays coming out? That looks more like somebody threw a rock into a mud puddle, right? Throw a rock into the mud puddle and splash it around. So there must have been some kind of water. There must have been a muddier area at the time when this crater formed. Now there isn't really any liquid water on Mars anymore, but if this crater formed a billion years ago, two billion years ago, at that time there could have been much more liquid and you can still see some of that evidence of how that on It almost looks like a big splash in there. You can get an idea of the age again just by telling that you see a crater here, crater here, crater here. You see little craters on top of this one, meaning that it's been some time since this crater formed. If it had formed very, very recently, there wouldn't be any craters on top of it at all. So the more craters that we see, the older the surface is. Not real old because there's not a lot of craters, but older than it would have been otherwise. Okay, that was the end of Mars. Questions on Mars or terrestrial planets? And we'll jump out to the Jovians. We'll get through most of it today. Jovian planets, these are the big ones. So we had all the little planets close to the Earth and all those were ones very similar. I mean, when you talk about them and you looked at some of the pictures, I could reference them in terms of things on the Earth, you know, splashing the rock in the mud puddle, things that you'd see. The Jovian planets are completely different. These are very big planets, gigantic gaseous planets. And here's a nice picture of Jupiter. Something like maybe like Galileo would have seen with his telescope. So if you have a if you have a pair of binoculars, you can see a little bit of this. You can actually see Jupiter. Won't get to see a lot of detail on Jupiter with just binoculars, but you can see the two outermost moons with a pair of binoculars. You can see the inner ones, but only when they're the furthest away from Jupiter, because a pair of binoculars won't quite split it out that much. If you have a small telescope, you can certainly see Galileo's telescopes were only, you know, a few inches in size. So easily with a small telescope, you'd be able to see Jupiter, you should be able to see some kind of structure, maybe something similar to this. Not near as pretty as the great pictures you see from Hubble or from any of the Voyagers or Galileo, any of the probes that have been to Jupiter, but still kind of nice to be able to see it for yourself, actually go out there and, and look at it. You know, other than knowing just what bright light it is, if you can actually get something, get a pair of binoculars, if you have a small telescope, try pointing it at Jupiter and see if you can actually pick out the moons. So. Jupiter we can see from the Earth real well. Mars we can see too. Mars we can get nice pictures from the Earth. We actually had things mapped out and remember they had the whole big thing with the Martians, right? All the canals on Mars and things. We can see those planets because they're further away from the Sun than we are. We can see them at night. So we can point a telescope at Jupiter at times in the middle of the night and get nicer images of it. Not near as nice as when we actually go there, but much nicer than we can see of things like Mercury or Venus. Now when you get a little bit closer to Jupiter, looks even better. That's not what you're going to see from the surface of the Earth. You're not what you're going to see with a small telescope. Although if you have a big enough telescope, you actually can pick out the great red spot, which is a gigantic storm that has been present on Jupiter for as long as we know. Ever since we've been able to observe with the telescope, so for hundreds of years now, this storm has been there. Sort of like a giant hurricane on the surface of, Jup on the, surface of the atmosphere of Jupiter. But we see that. Again, with a big enough telescope you can see that. And you also see that it has, you're, again, you're looking at the atmosphere, it has darker areas and lighter areas in the atmosphere. It has a lot of belts, what we call belts and zones across the surface of it. Those you can see even with a relatively small telescope. You can pick out the distinguishing characteristics, the darker and lighter. Although again, you won't see near the amount of detail that you get to see 
in the closer up images. And some other little storms scattered around. So a lot of different a lot of different features in the atmosphere. A much more complex atmosphere being a bigger planet than the Earth. It has a more compl- very complex atmosphere. Question? Sorry. Go back. No? No? Okay. Saturn. Come on. There we go. Saturn doesn't look near as pretty. Yeah, it's got the rings. If you ignore the rings, the surface of the planet, the planet's atmosphere doesn't look near as pretty. Got some distinct coloring, some coloring to it, but it looks, looks like a very washed out version of Jupiter. Rings make it look beautiful. You have the beautiful ring, I mean, that just that makes it stand out. But if you ignore the rings, there really isn't, the surface does not look near as pretty as what we saw for Jupiter. Reasoning for that is that Saturn is twice as far away from the Sun, it's a lot colder than Jupiter is. And all that, it has exactly the same effects going on. It has all those same belts. It has all that same stuff going on there. And you can see little remnants of it. But it's so much colder, there's, they're, they're buried deeper down closer to the planet. So there's more atmosphere and haze on top of it than there is at Jupiter. And we don't see them. So we don't really see any of the, of the strong features. Again, the rings stand out. We do know that. But most of the features of the, surface of, the, of the surface of the atmosphere are buried down lower in the atmosphere and there's all this haze around them and we can't really see as much detail. So Jupiter had a lot of detail, Saturn had very had a little bit. Uranus and Neptune, well Uranus gets even worse. There's almost nothing there. Looks very blue. It is a blue-green planet. There's a few little few little features in there. But again, you're getting colder and colder and everything is buried deep down in the atmosphere. So you don't really see a lot of detail on the surface. You do see a blue color and when you look at Uranus and Neptune, and that's because of what their atmospheres are made up of. Their atmospheres have a lot of methane in them. Methane is very good at absorbing red light. So when the sunlight comes and strikes Uranus and comes back to us, all the red light gets absorbed, the blue light comes back to us. So we see it as a blue color because it's very good at absorbing the light. My shirt has the same. It has some bluish in it. So that means it's very good at absorbing red light. The blue light gets reflected back to what you see. So you sort of see the opposite color as to what the, the shirt or the fabric wants to absorb. If you have something that's red, then it likes absorbing the blue light. It reflects back the red light very good. If you have something that yellow, it absorbs the reds and the blues and reflects back the yellows. But again, so that's, that's what we get with Uranus. We'll get the same thing with Neptune. Neptune starts to get a little bit more features too. Even a little bit deeper blue almost here. Blue is the same reasoning. Looks a lot, it's got a lot of methane in its atmosphere. Methane absorbs all the red light. So all the light from the sun as the whole rainbow strikes it. All the reddish, reddish light gets absorbed, so it comes back, the light coming back looks a lot bluer than it would otherwise. Now Neptune does have a storm as well. And you can see a large storm on it here. Most of that we did not know about until we actually traveled to Neptune. Voyager 2 that traveled to Jupiter, Saturn, and then passed by Uranus and Neptune. They've only been visited once. So I've actually had a chance to fly by them, you know, for the 
for those, the day or so as you get close to it and then you take a lot of pictures as you're coming right by and then you take a few as you're leaving and that's about our extent of our real good knowledge of Neptune. You know, even the Hubble Space Telescope, you're still looking at something relatively small. Yes, ma'am? Storm sinks like sort of, I think of the red spot as like a hurricane on, the, on Jupiter. So like a cyclonic storm. And lightning and stuff like that? You can get lightning on the other planets. You can get, I don't, you won't get rain in terms of you get rain on the Earth because it'll probably be other materials. Because the temperatures will be a lot colder. You might not have liquid water. You might have liquid methane. You might have liquid ammonia. But there are objects in the outer solar system where you could rain, you know, methane could rain. But yeah, you could get that kind of thing. But more of a storm in terms of, not necessarily think about the rain in that, but the, just the wind patterns, you know, the cyclonic wind patterns that you get like in a hurricane. All right, so a couple minutes left. We'll get through most of the Jovian planets and then we'll just do the moons next time. Jupiter's atmosphere. And again, here's some more detailed pictures. The zones and the belts. So the zones are brighter. So the lighter areas are called zones. They're a little higher up in the atmosphere, a little bit cooler. The belts are the darker areas. They're lower down in the atmosphere. So actually, when you're looking at that, what you think of as a flat surface of, of Jupiter, you're looking at the atmosphere, it's really you're looking at different levels. You're looking at some areas that are a little bit higher and some areas that are a little bit lower in there. And it's just sort of a convection material. Right? Convection ovens, the, the hot or convection heating, hot material heated at the base, rises up to the top, cools off and sinks down. So you'll get warmer areas coming up as they've, and then they cool off, forming a zone, and then hotter areas, and the cooler material then sinks, so that's the hot, that's the other. I'm getting it right? Yeah. So something happens underneath. This is all below the, below the atmosphere. What we see is the surface. We see the belts and we see the zones. We can't really see what's going on in here. This is all based on modeling. So we make a computer model that says, you know, maybe here's what's going on and how can we explain it? How can we explain what we see on Jupiter? We can't actually go down there and experiment. We can't go down there and, you know, take samples. We had, did send the Galileo probe, did send a, um, we talked about it last time, did send a probe into the atmosphere. It went down a certain depth, I don't, I don't remember how exactly how far that was, but it went down and was able to make some measurements, give us one measurement, set of measurements at one area, and do that. This is just a very simple model just explaining sort of convectively how the materials, how the materials formed. So I'm going to finish up there on Jupiter because I think, well, we'll come back to that. It's a little bit more on Jupiter, so that's another picture of the great red spot sort of giving you an idea of its size. I'll come back and finish up there on Tuesday and then we did chapter 5, 6 and most of 7 today so gone through almost three chapters. And then we'll finish up 7 and do 8 and then go on to the sun on, on Tuesday. So if there are questions on the homework you know, feel free to email me. If you want to give it, if you have it now I'll take it. If not you can email it to me tomorrow. Have a good weekend everyone. I'll see you Tuesday.